0: If you have your Bibles open to Revelation 20, then you can follow along, beginning of verse 11. And today we're going to discuss the Great White Throne Judgment. The Great White Throne Judgment may be something that you have heard about, maybe something you know a great deal about, but there will be some responses that this passage will have to elicit. You can't read this text this morning without something stirred in your heart. All week long, every single morning, I've woke up, I've woken up every morning thinking about this passage, just thinking about what I would be talking about this morning. It carries that much weight and there will be some, I think, some emotions stirred in your heart. When we think about uh, this passage, I want us to think about it too, not only uh, uh, in light of the throne that we're going to read about, but in light of the cross, especially this week. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is a place where you see justice, mercy, and grace collide. All three of those incredible attributes of God are at the cross. You know what justice is? Justice is when you receive what you rightfully deserve. Uh, justice is when you receive what you rightfully deserve. I heard, I heard about a, an honest photographer that was taking a man's photograph, and after uh, after presenting him the portraits, the man said, these pictures don't do me justice. And the photographer said, Sir, to be frank, you don't need justice, you need mercy. And mercy is uh, at the cross because mercy is what we do not deserve, or getting what are receiving what we don't deserve. <clears throat> Grace is getting what we what we don't deserve. Uh, mercy is getting you know, is is, is getting God's forgiveness and is giving, getting God's incredible faithfulness when He says, You deserve hell? but I'm not going to give it to you. Grace is, you don't deserve heaven, but I'm going to give it to you. At the cross, you see justice, God's incredible justice and righteousness displayed. Mercy displayed where Christ is taking away what we deserve. When Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, or what we consider Palm Sunday, when he moved into Jerusalem on that donkey, he was likely surrounded by animals bleeding as they were making their way, being led away to a sacrifice, to a slaughter. And in the middle of that, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is on his way to the cross to pay the penalty for sin that we deserve to pay. And we see mercy. We see grace there. And I want us to see that today because at the cross, the violence of God was on display in justice, but the brilliance of God's mercy and grace are also shown to us. And thank God for his mercy. Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations chapter 3, it is through the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. It is by God's mercy that all of us here aren't consumed. And I want us to see the great white throne judgment today in light of the cross, in light of God's mercy, and His grace. Several responses will come as a result of today's message. There will be some of you in here today that will be so struck by God's grace, His mercy, and His justice that you'll be saved. I know there's some of you here today that aren't saved, and today you'll realize I've been pretending, been pretentious, or have been fooling myself. I need to be saved, and today you can be saved. I know that the emotion, I think, that will be stirred up in the heart of the believer is that as we see today's text and kind of just watch what happens at the great white throne judgment, we'll say, thank you, God, that you saved me, because I deserve To be standing before the great white throne, receiving the sentence of hell, but by your grace you gave me heaven. And you'll grow more deeply in love with the Lord. I'm also quite aware that some of you today will grow angry at this passage. You'll see the beauty and brilliance of Christ and the cross. But unless God opens your eyes and changes your heart and converts you, even the beauty of Christ will become ugly. You'll see that as we go through this text. Uh, probably experience what every guy has experienced with shopping for an engagement ring. Guys, y'all remember that? Like yesterday, I can still describe the man who sold me the diamond. I can describe what he looked like to you. I can see his face. I I know what he was wearing. And part of that reason was... Is as so I went around to jewelry stores and had other guys laugh at me for what I was trying to spend, I finally made myself, made my way to the Governor Square Mall in Tallahassee, where we were living, and uh, I met a jeweler. He was very kind, and he said, Let me show you some diamonds. And he's showing me diamonds. Then he asked me my, my budget, and he says, Well, let's move down to this counter. <laughs> and he pulled out this diamond, and it didn't look like much. I mean, it just wasn't that impressive. And he said, Wait, wait. And everybody's probably experienced this when the jeweler takes out that dark cloth. I think in this case it was actually navy blue, not black. And he put that diamond up against that very navy dark cloth. And I said, there it is. It's beautiful. And I, I think that's part of what happens to the believer today. When we look at this scene of the great white throne judgment that will will Look at the mercy and grace of God differently, even more lovingly. You think about his mercy. Abraham was the man of faith and is an example of faith. Here he was, a guy who wasn't worshiping God, and God chose him. And then Abraham believed God and experienced the mercy and grace of God. He took Isaac, his only son, up to a mountain and was going to give the life of Isaac to God. and By God's mercy, an angel stopped him from doing that. And by God's grace provided instead a lamb that had been caught in a thicket that could be sacrificed in the place of Isaac. Mercy is seen as certainly in the story of the prodigal son that Jesus told us about a man who left his father, took his inheritance and spent it in all type of sinful activity. And when he came back to his father, the father ran to him and should have, the father should have punished the son, but had mercy on the son and graciously threw a party of extravagance. The good Samaritan showed mercy when he came among a man who had been beaten by thieves and bandaged his wounds and cared for his sores. But grace was seen in the good Samaritan when he took this man to an inn and told the innkeeper, whatever he needs, I'll pay for it. Mercy hears the cry of the thief on the cross who says, I'm getting what I rightfully deserve. But would you remember me when you enter and to your kingdom. And grace is Jesus looking at the thief who's on a cross receiving what he rightfully deserves and says, this day you will be with me in paradise. Mercy withholds what I've earned, and grace provides the blessings I have not earned. Mercy closes the door to hell that I rightfully deserve to bust through. Grace provides blessings for heaven that I do not deserve. And wait just a minute. Grace cost the grace giver a great deal. Grace is not free. Jesus suffered on the cross in agony, shed his blood so that the sin that I've committed could be washed away forever and that I could have what I do not and would never earn. This is why on Friday, we'll come together and worship and we call Friday Good Friday. And I have friends of other religions who've asked me, why do you call Good Friday good? Well, because the most horrible thing that's ever happened in the universe, Christ on the cross, is actually the most wonderful thing that's ever happened in the universe. And if you recognize that, and you come to that, by God's grace, conclusion that you need to be converted through Christ, then you too will feel the same way. God's wrath is, God's wrath was poured out on the cross. And by the way, as we read here, and I'm, I'm about to get into this text, just as a, one more introductory statement, we're going to see God's wrath in the most, I think, fear. Some way we could see it. It should really strike a chord of fear in our heart that God's wrath is not just reserved for the end. God has always been a God of wrath. He's eternal. His wrath is eternal. And it runs the course of history even now. For instance, if you read Romans chapter 1, have you read Romans 1? And three times in Romans 1, we're told that there are people who have depraved hearts and have chosen to reject God. And each time, God says three times, he gave them over to a debased mind, an insane mind. God gave them up in his wrath and in his justice and his judgment, God gave them over. And we see that play out in our world, don't we? Just this past week, we see the wrath of God played out through those who have rejected his plan and have done some of the most insane things imaginable. His wrath is seen throughout all of history, but ultimately it's going to be seen at this final event at the time when all life ends, when there is no more earth and no more heaven, the great white throne judgment. I want you to see this in four settings, this text. If you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 20 verse 11, the first setting is this, uh, first First heading is this, the first heading is this, the setting of the great white throne. The setting of the great white throne. Look in verse 11. John said, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from its presence, earth and sky or the heavens fled away and no place was found for them. Very simply, here's John looking at this throne of judgment so that you understand the only people who are at the great white throne judgment standing before it are those who are unbelievers. They've not been converted. There are people in the Old Testament, not converted. People who lived out the church age, not converted. People through the tribulation who are not converted. Those who lived through the millennial reign of Christ on the earth and yet were not converted. Those who are before the throne of God. I agree with what John Phillips wrote about this, we're struck here by the austere language, the remarkable economy of words. There's nothing of Dante or Milton here, no embellishments, just the stark narrative of doom. What did John see? He saw a throne, and it's a throne of justice. Psalm chapter 9 tells us the Lord is enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. It's a great throne. I mean, it's the greatest one. It's one throne among many. We've already seen there are other thrones that others are on, but this throne is the greatest throne. It's a great white throne. Note that because in Revelation 4, we see the throne of God described with rainbows. What is a rainbow? Well, you know what a rainbow is. Before it was co-opted by secular society, God gave it to us as a sign of his covenant, not to destroy the earth with water. It is a symbol of grace. So when you look into the sky after a rainstorm and you see that rainbow, you and I are always reminded our God is a God of grace and mercy and salvation. This throne, no more salvation. No more opportunity For grace or mercy to be received. It's only here a throne of justice. It is a throne that you don't hear any thunderings and lightnings coming from, as in Revelation 4. Why? No more warning. There's no more peals of thunder, no more voice, because this is the final time of sentencing. It's a great white throne judgment. Look who's seated on it. Look who's seated on it. Him who sat on it the earth and heavens or the sky fled away. Now we know from other passages of Scripture that this one who's seated on it is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine Jesus having to stand before Caiaphas, the great high priest of that day. And Jesus, the eternal high priest, being questioned by that maniacal, hypocritical, religious fraud. But one day, Caiaphas will stand before Jesus. And Pilate, who had the power to exonerate Jesus, but because he feared the people, gave him up to be crucified, will stand before Jesus. It's Jesus who's on this throne. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And then he said, and he, that is God, has given him, that is Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who's going to be the one judging. He's going to be on this throne and he knows what it is to be just, and he also understands, like no one else, what it is to be on the other side of that justice. In Isaiah 53, we read how that he was crushed by the Lord for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus Christ knows what it is to take the wrath of God, and now he's distributing it. There's no injustice here. There's no one there that shouldn't be there. Everyone there is guilty and silent before God. 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you therefore, Paul told Timothy, I'm telling you, Timothy, you continue in this ministry before God who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. The apostles said, God commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. I know when you begin to read this, there are different responses that you might have. The scriptures tell us in the book of Psalms, oh, let the evil one come to an end, but establish the righteous. In Psalm 112, the wicked man sees it and he's angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Adrian Rogers starts off his sermon talking about a man, this sermon on this text, talking about a man that was saved who was giving his testimony. He said that there was a little town in which he lived, and in that little town, preachers would come to the particular church there that preached the gospel, and it was a preacher that actually came brand new to the city. He was only there a week. He came to preach in that little church, and he was on the sidewalk. And the atheist that lived in that city that was notorious for attacking these preachers saw him on the street. And he came up to the preacher and he said to the preacher, I hear you're the new pastor in town. That's right. They introduced each other to themselves. The names back and forth were exchanged. Then that atheist said, I just want you to understand something. I'm going to do everything I can to make life miserable for you because I believe you're a sham. I don't think that there ought to be a church. I think you're wasting people's time and money, and I'm going to do everything to expose you as the fraud you are. What do you think about that? And that young preacher said, well, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. He said, where do you get that from? He said, the Bible. He said, don't quote the Bible to me. I don't believe the Bible. I told you I don't believe in God. and I don't believe the Bible. The preacher said to him, it is appointed unto man once to die, And after this, the judgment. He said, I'm sick and tired of hearing this religious jargon. Don't you have anything else to say but that? And the preacher said, it is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. He said, I want to have a a debate with you. I want to have some common sense, logical debate with you. Can't you do that? And the preacher looked at him and said, it is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. The atheist, who actually was the one telling the story because he had been saved, said, I was so angry that I turned around to walk home. I went over a little bridge that was near my house, but it was as if every frog in the swamp was singing the same song. Judgment, judgment, judgment. (laughs) Well, Jesus said that the Spirit of God would come and he would complete the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment. I was on an airplane with less, and we were flying non-reservation, so that means, you know, you don't have a seat, you might get on. And we got on, so we weren't sitting together, but she was sitting behind me, and she witnesses everywhere she goes, and someone sat next to her, and she's already witnessing, and there's nobody sitting next to me. And I'm like, this is great, no one next to me. Then you get that, you get that announcement that you don't want to hear. Hey, this is a full flight. You're like, great. So now I'm looking down the aisle saying, who's going to sit next to me? And I hope it's somebody small. And I look and I see a hulk man walking down the aisle. I mean, he is a massive man. I, this guy benches more before breakfast than most people in their lifetime. This guy is, he, he, he's a man's man. And I'm like, I ah, sure hope that's not the guy, because look at those shoulders. And sure enough, stops, puts his stuff up there, goes, that's my seat. Come on, man. So now I'm doing this. I hear Leslie witnessing, I'm like, I'm going to witness, and some of you heard some of this story, and I'm not going to tell you all the story. Another day, I'll tell you this amazing deal. And I look at him, and eventually I say, man, are you born again? This is a big man. He looks at me like, I can't believe you asked me that question. He said, am I born again? Yes, I'm born again. And then he began to tell me his story of how he got saved. And it wasn't just me that he was telling the story. I mean, everybody on the plane heard the story. Yo, I think it was telling me the story so the pilots could get saved. All right, 30, 35 minutes he's recounting. And I'll tell you, if you never heard the story, I'll tell you, it's an amazing story. The guy had played for LSU. He played in the National Football League. And here he is telling me the story of how he came to Christ. The reason I'm telling you this story is because as I got in my seat, the guy in front of me was already seated and already had his iPad open, and he was watching the most vulgar images that you shouldn't ever put before your eyes. And while we're sitting there, and this man's telling me about how he got saved, that guy grabs his iPad in a huff, closes it up, looks at both of us and goes, huh, and walks to the back of the plane because he was sick and tired of hearing about Jesus. Jesus. There was nowhere for him to sit, so he just stood back there. That's the response of some people, isn't it? They hear about this and they get angry. There's a response here you can have. You can get angry at what's coming, or you can get right. The heaven and the sky fled away. You can't run from it. You can't run from it. So, boy, that I baptized. Years ago at Westside Baptist, where I was on staff, was asked the question, how'd you get saved? I mean, we were in the back in the room, how did you get saved? He goes, well, I came to church, my wife's been dragging me, and I'm an alcoholic, and the preacher that day, Tommy Maller, was preaching, and he was, got on that subject of alcohol, and I got so mad, I said, that's it, I'll never come back here. And I left in the middle of his sermon, and I went to hide in the bathroom. And I got in the stall just to hide till church was over but you guys have speakers <laughs> in the bathroom. You can't run. This throne is so fierce that even heaven and earth wanted to flee, but they had nowhere. There was no place for them. Peter said, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. Just in the next chapter, John said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, this scene is so frightening that heaven and earth would hide, but there's nowhere for them to hide. Nobody can hide from this judgment. You are either hidden in Christ or exposed before the great white throne. Notice the subjects who are there, subjects who are there. Look at verse 12. Then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne the books open. Very simply, I saw everybody. It's everybody who's died up to this point. The only people who have it are those who have entered into the kingdom because they've been part of the millennial kingdom. And they're the saints of God. It's everybody. And they're great and small. Great and small. Doesn't matter how big you are, how small you are, how important you are, how unimportant you are. Doesn't matter how much you have, doesn't matter what you do not have. Some of you know about the science fiction book that has a, has a scene where people are, are going in and being punished for their crime. It's capital punishment. And the way this government's chosen to, to kill, to execute, These criminals is to put them in a booth where they get to see the entire universe. And when they see the entire universe, they then see how insignificant they are. And then when they realize how insignificant they are, they actually die. It kills them. But there will be a day when it doesn't matter how significant someone thinks they are, they're going to stand before the great white throne and be exposed for who they are really are. In Romans chapter 2, the Bible says God has no partiality. Notice they're standing, standing, standing in what? In judgment. That leads me to the third heading, the summons. So we see the subject, we see the subjects are everybody. That means it doesn't matter where they come from, the summons. Why are they there? What are they indicted for? I saw books open and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Very clear, very clear. Everyone before the great white throne judgment are being judged for what they've done. What books are open? The Bible. Why the Bible? Well, the Bible is going to demonstrate that those who are before the Great White Throne judgment have not lived up to the commands of God. In Luke chapter 18, you know the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. This is Jesus witnessing to a young man. What what do I do? How do I get to heaven? Here is Jesus exposing this man's heart and his deeds. You've never kept these commandments. And if you've ever broken one, James says, you've broken them all. You're guilty of them all. If you have broken one commandment, you're guilty of the entire law. And here it is, the word of God opened up. And who's lived up to the standard of the word of God sets? Only Jesus. In John chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus said, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I've spoken will judge him on that last day. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, you better build your house on the rock. What does that do, the words that I said? Because the people who build their house on the sand and have their house their lives destroyed are those who built their lives by not doing what he said. James chapter 4 and the Bible even tells us this, he who knows what is right and doesn't do it, it's sin. It's not only the things you've done that are wrong, it's the things that you did not do that were right. Those are called the sins of omission. In Sunday school, a little boy was asked, do you know the difference between sins of commission and the sins of omission? And the little boy said, yeah, the sins of commissions are the ones I've committed and the ones of omissions are the ones I meant to but forgot to. Those are the things that we didn't do that we should do. And there are no excuses, no excuses, no excuses. The rich man who woke up in Hades looked up to heaven and asked and begged, would you send somebody to my brothers? Just give them a sign. Give my brothers a sign so they don't come to this place. And the Lord answered. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. No one will have an excuse in that day. The book of deeds will be open. Those are the things we've done. Verse 13, look at this. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they've done. Notice how clear John is. It doesn't matter how someone died, where their body is. It's being resurrected. The pagans would burn their bodies so that it couldn't be resurrected. It will not stop God from resurrecting in the second resurrection those who are lost. There is a resurrection of the just, and there's a resurrection of the unjust. Here they are before the throne. And for what reason? To give an account for what they've done. Ecclesiastes 12:14. For God will bring every deed into judgment. Imagine that. Standing before God and having to give an account for every wrong thing you've ever done. Heaven's servers are never down. All the data is being collected. Not only the things we've done, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Things that your spouse doesn't even know about you. No one knows. And you think will never be known. You will take it to your grave, except you'll be resurrected, and so will the offense. Psalm chapter 44 says, he knows the secrets of the heart, even the thoughts that we have. Romans 2.16, and that day God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 8, for nothing hidden, there's nothing hidden that will not be made manifest. Our our thoughts, our words. Imagine this. Jesus said, I tell you on that day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they've spoken. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, for the Son of Man is coming in in clouds of the glory of His Father. He'll repay everyone for what they've done. Either your sin is hidden in Christ, under and washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, or you're going to give an account. Of every evil thing you've ever done. Something you may not have considered. I don't know if you consider this or not. But the Bible also teaches that there are severities of judgment. Not everyone's going to receive the same exact judgment. Some will receive a more severe judgment. Jesus speaking said, And if anyone does not receive you disciples... Or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet and leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Imagine that, Jesus telling the disciples, it's going to be bad for Sodom and Gomorrah and those inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to be worse for the people who heard you guys and didn't receive the gospel that you preached. I mean, all Sodom and Gomorrah had was Lot. Look what we have. Look what we have. They had one preacher, and he was a backslidden preacher. Look what we have. We live, and let's not go yet to New Guinea or Africa. Let's just go right here to Clay County. There are gospel preaching churches in Clay County. You can walk down the street and accidentally trip over a track. You can have someone want to share the gospel with you. You can turn your radio on and accidentally land on Way Radio, and someone's preaching the gospel. That's the point. That those who have heard the gospel and have rejected the gospel, a more severe judgment. Jesus talked about his own hometowns where he walked. They're going to have a worse judgment, he said, because of my works than Sodom and Gomorrah. The books are scoured then for deeds. They are also scoured for names. The books are going to be open in the book of life. The book of life. What is the book of life? That book of life contains all the saved is your name in the book of life when the book of life is opened and scoured is your name there? In Revelation 21:27, but nothing unclean will ever enter into heaven, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The disciples on one occasion came back after a great ministry and seeing demons subjected to the name of Christ. They were rejoicing. Jesus said, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I told you already that there are going to be some responses to this message. Those of us who are saved are going to say, I can't believe I'm saved, but I'm grateful I am saved. And I can't get over the fact that I've been saved. If you ever get over the fact you've been saved, you probably never were saved. 2 Corinthians 13 says, examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. Test yourselves. This is Paul. Telling the church at Corinth. I was preaching. And I had a family come to me and say, I, I, we don't like your preaching. That was the essence of the, Well, you, you, there's a crowd, you can join them. I didn't say that. <laughs> Thank God I didn't say that. So what, 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 why not? Because your preaching is making my wife lack assurance of her salvation through some conversation, what we discovered was the reason she lacked assurance of salvation is because she had no salvation. It is never the job of the preacher to cause anyone to doubt their salvation. It is the job of the preacher to preach the gospel so clearly that those who are not saved will come to the conclusion they must be. Nothing unclean will ever enter into heaven, Revelation 21, 27, nor anyone who does detestable false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Last heading, last heading, fourth heading, the sentence handed down at the great white throne. Look at verse 14, then, and I have then underlined in my Bible, then, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And I want to read those two passages again. Count with me how many times uh, the phrase lake of fire is mentioned in just these two verses. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire One. This is the second death, the lake of fire, two. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, three. Do you think John wanted us to understand that hell is a lake of fire? Death and Hades are the waiting places of the dead now. When someone dies, they go to the place of incarceration called Hades. It is a place of suffering, but it is not hell. It is not the place where the devil is ruling, by the way. He wants to avoid hell. He will not rule in hell. No one will party in hell. No one's going to hell to be with their friends. It is the place of outer darkness and the gnashing of teeth. It is the place where everything that has been done in this life will be exposed and all of the sin that people long after will still be longed after. In Revelation 22 verse 11, let the evil doer still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy. The guilty will have guilt for eternity. The condemned, condemned forever. The one who is eaten up with lust will never get what his flesh desires for eternity. The alcoholic who never repents will want to drink for the rest of eternity. The suffering of the flesh for all eternity. It breaks my heart when I hear what I heard this week. At least they're in a better place. No, they're not. It's it's our flesh that wants to say, well, at least the cancer is gone and they're suffering no more. No, they're suffering like never before. I can't believe you believe that, Pastor. You're revealing your own heart. Because when you get saved, you'll recognize that's exactly what you deserve. By the way, I'm in good company of preachers. Jesus preached about hell more than he did about heaven. Here, Peter says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, but to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Salvation, salvation is by faith in in Christ Jesus, who by his mercy does not give us what we deserve. Thank God for that. By his grace, gives us what we could never earn. That's heaven. Salvation is by faith. It's not by works. It's by faith. It's not by works. It's by faith. It's not by works. You've heard me say it. I'll say it till I die. Salvation is by faith. It is not by works. When Jesus, and I'm giving a little bit of my message away for Friday, when Jesus said to Telestai, it is finished, that meant you can't add one thing to it. And to try to add one thing to it is to make Jesus a liar. He finished the work of salvation on the cross. He said it is completely full. Don't try to add anything to it. There are religions today that are, that are actually, actually blaspheming the cross because they're saying you can add something to what Jesus did. You cannot. Salvation is by faith, not of works. However... Judgment for the lost is according to works. I just wanted to drive that home. We're going to heaven not because we're good people. And you're going to hell because you're not a good person. We're going to heaven because Jesus is the one who lived righteously and then gives us his righteousness, and that's what we have on our account. I'm trying just to get another angle here so that we understand this judgment is by works, This is the second death, the Bible says. The second death. It was never meant for man to die. Jesus told, uh, the Lord God told Adam and Eve of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat for the day in which you eat it, you shall surely die. Don't eat, don't eat, don't eat, because you'll die. It was never intended, God's intention for man to sin and rebel and die, but he has. It's certainly not God's intention that we die twice, but people do. The old saying goes like this, born once, Die twice, born twice, die once. When I asked the man, Are you born again? and he said, Yes, I'm born again. It meant he was born as a man, now he's been born from above as a Christian. He's been born twice. He's only going to die once. But if you are not been born again, you don't only die physically, you die eternally. But Jesus paid the punishment already. He paid the punishment for your sin. If you reject it, if you reject it, then you'll get at the white throne judgment what you rightfully deserve. You won't meet God in mercy. You'll meet him in justice. And justice is what? It's receiving what I rightfully deserve. You can meet God now at his throne of mercy. You can meet God now at his throne of grace. But not then. I'm going to borrow this from an old preacher, but it's so good and it's so accurate as to why some of you may not be saved today. You might say, I'd get saved, but I really don't know what religion or what church I ought to go to. There's so many of them. Uh, Who's right? You stand before God and you are asked, why should I let you into my heaven? You say, well, because I didn't know what church to go to. Jesus will look at you and say, I never said believe on the church. I said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You stand before God, you say, but there were so many hypocrites at that church Oh, there's so many hypocrites at that church. He will look at you and say, I never told you to believe on the hypocrite. I told you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So, well, that preacher, you know York, I mean, you know him. He, was, he made me mad. I never told you to believe on the preacher. I told you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you would be saved. Well, Lord, I just, I'm just really humble. And I, I didn't get saved because I knew I could never live up. To what a Christian is supposed to be. And he'll look at you and he'll say. I never told you to believe on yourself. I told you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you would be saved. Salvation is by faith. God gives us the gift of eternal life. Because he's gracious. Music helps us I think. Really express in poetic form. What we can't otherwise. And. I think about this week, we're going to be talking about the cross, and there's a song that we sing typically during the season called, I Survey, I Survey the Wondrous Cross. The first verse says, where the whole realm of nature mine, that were present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I would hope for the believer today who reads this text and does what I've done, just wondering about it and Musing over it and shocked by it, struck in it. God, I deserve to be here. Thank you. Thank you for your amazing grace that you saved a wretch like me. You deserve my soul, my life, my all. I can never repay you. But your love is so amazing and so divine. Think about the song Rock of Ages. What an incredible song in light of today's text. Because it reminds me what I have to boast in. Not in wealth, not in wisdom, no gift that I boast in, but it is in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Rock of Ages. Do you know this old song? Maybe you sung it growing up. Rock of Ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side that flowed be for sin. A double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Man, did the songwriter have it right? God forgives us, cleanses us, and then gives us purity. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal? No, no respite. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save, and you alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Last verse. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown and see you on your judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. The only hope, Christ. Father, thank you that you have given us this warning The sober, clear revelation of the final event in human history. When heaven is made new. When earth is no more. When salvation is no longer offered. And sin is finally done. We say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But Lord, this morning, save those who are lost. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.